Smartcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey listeners, I know a lot of you guys have been having conversations about digital assets like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Dogecoin, and some of the other trends in this space related to DeFi and NFTs. So if you're looking for a trustworthy platform to buy and sell cryptocurrency in Canada, we recommend you check out BitBuy. BitBuy has been servicing Canadians since 2016 and now has over 300,000 registered users. With BitBuy, you can buy and sell crypto using Interac eTransfer or BankWire, from your existing Canadian financial institution in just minutes. BitBuy is now offering $20 free when you sign up for a new account using the referral code E2. Go to bitbuy.ca or download the app and open an account in a few clicks. Be sure to enter the code E2 when creating your account. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed. We speak to all kinds of great entrepreneurs and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. Today on the show is Mike Geddes, who is joining us for round two. Mike founded Endy in 2015, Canada's fastest growing vertical e-commerce company and market leader in the online mattress space. After the big sale to Sleep Country in 2018, Mike has gone on to launch Kiln, quality cookware at affordable prices, and in this one, we discuss Mike's experience growing and selling Endy, how marketing has shifted during the pandemic, other trends related to DDC commerce, and how he's taken advantage of the momentum in e-commerce with his latest venture in the kitchen space, and much, much more. So with that intro out of the way, let's get to the show. Here is round two with Mike Geddes. I mean, how has your life been since Andy was sold to Sleep Country? How have things changed? And um, how was the seed for Kiln, this new business that you're involved in? How did that get planted? Yeah, so we, I mean, when we went through the sale process, um, we had started discussions the summer before in 2018. Um, so we didn't know if we'd actually get to a completed sale. There's lots of times when you have discussions with different parties and different suitors that come by. Both my uh, co-founder and I were interested in selling the company at some point in time. Um, so we were having some really good growth. And um, that sometimes can be a good opportunity to look at a potential sale as well. Um, just to say, you're already at like your highest growth inflection um, that you've seen uh, in the business. And so what, what would it be worth? So conversations started going and more discussions started happening. And then pretty soon we started talking about a price and settling in on how things could work. And 
Yeah, and I think as we continued forward into this uh, into this process, we, it kept going kind of back and forth. And then we got into the actual, like once the lawyers are there, it's starting to get a little more serious. And so it was definitely like a, an interesting time where there was like really exciting things happening. And there were some things that were not great that were happening. It was a unique time in my life, for sure, going through the sale of a company and something that you'd built from nothing. And it was sort of like, I guess you could call it your baby, but almost that sounds sounds a little bit like you're a baby yourself that you're just like, it's it's yours. But no, it had become so much bigger than just that. It was something that was our baby, but it'd become a lot bigger. To answer the question on Kiln, what happened there is uh, we started going on our earnout and we started proceeding forward. And then out of nowhere, this pandemic came through. I mean, not completely out of nowhere if you were fully up on virology and science and watching what was going on in Wuhan. But I think for myself, I was sort of thinking it was going to be like a SARS 2.0. And I think a lot of people thought that way too. That being said, um, I'd already started to in that year, which was was fast forwarding about a year forward towards the earnout year for us, which was 2020, started looking at some new ideas because I'd started to think about the next project. And uh, one of the things I really liked about Kitchen was just I'd always loved the idea of like kitchen stores and kitchen gadgets and looking at different things and ways you could do things better. And uh, I wasn't always the best at everything. So any tool I could use in the kitchen to help me chop better or uh cook better was always something that I was interested in looking at. So started doing this from a sourcing perspective and then landed on the knife set. And then uh, as we accelerated so quickly through being able to hit our earnout targets, then I started to accelerate my thinking of uh, getting going with Kiln. Mm-hmm. Are you leveraging partnerships from Endy and bringing some of those over into Kiln? Or was this sort of a net new project where you had to learn everything from scratch? Um, yeah, was able to leverage a lot of expertise, uh, partners in terms of looking at sourcing and things. There are people that I had worked with in the past, even before the sale. But again, I think in terms of with ND, the other thing too, is once you sign a sale agreement, there's a non-solicitation involved and there's a non, like with vendors and things, you really have to kind of play ball on that, that you've sold a lot of that. So trying to not leverage too much if possible. And every once in a while, like with things like um, looking at some different people I've worked with in the past, definitely has been helpful to, to move forward and, and get some help there. Uh, I would say, if anything, even just the expertise in the playbook and some of the things we learned through trial and error, you do a little less when you get going. But uh, still, I think the entrepreneurial journey involves a lot of that trial and error. Mm-hmm. So you launched Kiln in November of 2020. In the midst of the pandemic, this thing goes live. And as you mentioned, you have this interest in kitchen, but this seems like, you know, perfect market timing, let's say, for launching something in this space. Did you feel like the pandemic was a bellwether for you? Well, there were some aspects of it that made it make sense. Um, I know when we actually launched the day we launched um, to speak to the pandemic, we were able to be featured, uh, luckily, by Chatelaine on Black Friday, the day we launched. And so we were able to see a really big sales uptick day one which was fantastic. And I think a big learning we've had is how many people love to gift kitchen stuff to people, uh, or kitchen-related items. And the more we've seen that um, that trend, it's been really, really, really valuable for our marketing efforts. But in terms of the sales side, yeah, we, we saw a nice boost. But at the same time, I would say some of the big brands, I think, also benefited 
probably the most uh, as opposed to startup brands. And just seeing that from the Endy experience and seeing that from a lot of the other brands that have now come out and raised, they actually had a brand presence previous to the pandemic. They'd already had brand awareness previous to the pandemic. And because they were online only, people were like, ah, instead of going to the retail store, now I'm just going to shift and do this through buying online. And so they were easily just willing to go. They already knew with the brand they went. I still think with any brand, regardless of whether you're starting in a pandemic or not, the biggest hurdle is building that trust with customers. The long tail way of winning trust is having enough of your product in enough people's hands that if someone's at the pub and says, or at a restaurant and says, hey, have you tried this kiln brand? That someone's like, oh yeah, I've got something of theirs. It's great. Another aspect of building trust that I think is critical, and please weigh in on this, is this back-end customer service and support, mm-hmm. right? And, and and beyond the product quality, how do customers you know, access you? And do they trust that if something goes wrong, that they can engage with your brand? So what was yeah. your experience on the CS side of things with ND and, and how do you carry it over with Kiln, if you do? Well, some of that is even just looking at even just how you interact with customers. You know, if a customer, one of the things we've started doing with Kiln and with ND, I think we did this for some of it, but let's say someone posts a bad review. What we're trying to do is just like right underneath that bad review. Hey, we're here to resolve this. We'll send you a message, but we'll also, you know, to show to the everyone how we handle our customer experience and that side of it, um, showing more reviews in different places other than just the website. Um, some of those sort of things are helping. So I think that helps to build trust with the customer experience side. Also, when people post, like I had a great experience with with Kiln or with Andy or saying that you know, from from all the way from the purchase all the way through. And you can see that in the reviews as well, the way people comment. So that makes a big difference as well. Mm-hmm. One of the other differences between uh, your experience now versus versus prior with Endy, um, at least on the co-founder side of things, and you've talked about the importance of having co-founders in the mix. So I know that you find that valuable, but this time uh, you've got an interesting co-founder in that you've launched Kiln with your wife. So how did that happen and how's it been going so far? If it was non-pandemic, we may not have gone down that road of working together on a project, but then with us being at home together and working on trying to find communications and all those different things, it just seemed to make so much sense of like having the product and the communications and it's worked really well so far that we're able to just, you know, especially having someone in person that you're chatting with. I know a few friends are just like, you're going to work with your wife on this project. Is that a good idea? I was just like, yeah, it's great. I know R&D was important when you were building Andy, at least in the early days. Do you also prioritize and invest in R&D the same way you did the first time around? Yeah, for sure. Uh, the Looking at the research and development side is key. Uh, product at the end of the day is still going to win. It doesn't really matter how good your marketing strategy is. You may have the most, you know, I get this a lot actually from people who are building their businesses. Um, even when they look at Andy from the outside, it's just sort of like, well, your marketing is so amazing. And what did you guys do to market your product? But at the same time, really, a lot of that, too, is a feedback loop between customer feedback and product and any improvements you can make in terms of even like, let's say our pillow was always a good example uh, with Andy, where you had that adjustable pillow. What you That wasn't originally adjustable, but we had a lot of customers that were saying, you know, I, I'm a large set person or I'm a small person or, you know, anything in between that. And then they were saying that the amount of plush or amount of material in a pillow they needed varied quite a bit. And so we were like, OK, well, we'll put a zipper and you can remove some and we'll send it with a bag and then you can put it in the bag. In some ways, it's a double edged sword. The longer you spend on the R&D, the, the longer it takes you to get to market. 
But it's about getting to that point where you feel that the product is exceptional and it's better than what other people can get to people. Though to that point on the marketing, if you have the marketing and you have the product at the same time, uh, the two together, um, it's a really, really powerful thing. And so there's a lot of companies that are either good at marketing or they're either good at product, but they're not necessarily good at both. And so combining those together is really, really what the secret sauce is for us. What do you see changing on the marketing side of things? Like when you look at D2C companies, and we'll just use D2C as an example, because that's your arena, let's say. How do you see marketing strategies, channel strategies evolving? Where have things gone from, say, pre-pandemic? And where do you see things going as we move forward out of this? There's a lot changing. I do feel the digital marketing thing, like, for example, at the beginning, with a brand new channel, such as when we first started marketing on Facebook, it really didn't give us a lot for example, as a channel. And then there was this sweet spot where uh, CPMs were like nothing, and then they were getting more expensive, and then they get too expensive. And so it's sort of trying to find the balance between all of that. I think definitely uh, through the pandemic, you get everyone advertising online. Um, it's very difficult to advertise you know, using at a home or some of those other mediums that were more common. So I think what it always becomes is be learning to have more than one arrow in your quiver, as it were, where you're able to look at marketing as a holistic thing. Like this whole idea of digital marketing being the be-all and the end-all, I think digital marketing is great and will always have its place in the next while. I just don't see it going away. But in terms of what you're using it for, um, to build you know, a huge brand, um, it's difficult to just do with Facebook marketing or Google marketing is a great example because people have to actually inbound search for you. So looking at those sort of things, I think it's more nowadays, where can I be? Where's my audience? Where are the trends going? And then looking at where the CPMs are too. Like where is it least expensive right now to go? Uh, where can I uh, Where can I go next? As marketers begin to think about how they want to diversify their marketing budget across other channels and not have their arrow, let's say, as you describe in one quiver, Facebook and Instagram obviously are the default, but these up and coming channels, like what else are you watching? Are you looking at TikTok? Are you looking at Snapchat, Pinterest, any of these other alternatives that are less expensive? I do hear a lot of people with TikTok are using this um, based on audiences, um, definitely in terms of younger crowds. They're doing, you know, videos that are really um, um, entertaining and really have a lot of splash to them. So it depends on what strategy you're going after. For us specifically with Kitchen, so far we're finding that the age group is a little bit older. That doesn't mean that younger crowds won't buy. But I just look back to when I was in university, I wasn't cooking from my dorm room. You know, I was going out to eat or I was going to the cafeteria. So it wasn't that I didn't want to. It was more, but to buy a gift for for dad or for grandpa or whatever, that makes sense, or for mom. So I don't think we can, we don't want to ignore them completely. I think it's more just us learning the messaging that maybe works. And, and I think TikTok is, is valuable for that. We found with, with Snapchat and Pinterest, it's just mixed. I've never really been able to scale any of those. Everything's worth giving a shot to. I think you can start with pretty small budgets digitally. That's the beauty of it. I also think going back to this product R&D idea to test a product market fit, digital is always going to be the best. Like to to, to have to buy a, a billboard on the Gardner Expressway to test your product is pretty expensive. You can do rapid prototyping online and kind of see, are people engaging with it? Uh, what do they say in the comments and good or bad? And, and using some of that info as well to get a feel for where people are at. Do you remember what you and Raj were doing product market fit wise early on at Endy? What were some of those early tests? 
Oh, some of the early tests? Well, I think for us, we started actually previous to, to getting going with ND was where I'd spent quite a bit of time on product market fit. So it was with pillows and we tried mattresses. We were using actually just wholesale channels. So we were using like Amazon and we were using um, Google deals and we were using uh, Living Social and Groupon and all of these all of these channels. And we were using that because we essentially had isolated for marketing. We're testing different products. So that was where we kind of got going on this uh, sleep thing where we saw that there was a lot of uptick uh, on, on that. So that was where we were able to actually really, really test. I think nowadays you don't need to where you can test stuff using Facebook and you can test different products that way um, and see sort of how they resonate with people. One of the things that I found interesting, I'm just pulling up some stats uh, that I was looking at before this recording is that, you know, and maybe you guys were ahead of the curve, but we're sort of entering this period of, you know, a sleep epidemic in North America where perhaps unbeknownst to, to most, you know, just looking at the Canadian market, only 35% of Canadians report getting seven hours of, of quality sleep. One in four adults are not getting enough sleep. One in two adults have trouble going to sleep. And one in five adults do not find their sleep refreshing whatsoever. So as you look at, you know, trying to be in an industry or a market where you've got a high problem solve score, were you guys paying attention to what was happening on this macro of a level? Or for you, was it just disrupting a, a legacy industry where, you know, frumpy brands kind of own the space and you were entering in order to disrupt things? Yeah, that's, I think, exactly where the perspective came from. It was looking at trends as well. I mean, the three, the, the two main trends were really the shift from offline to online that was occurring. And you're just seeing that curve continue to go. And then as well, there was a shift from um, spring mattress over to foam. Um, and then combining those trends together in terms of the ability to ship things quickly to people and put it in, put the mattress, roll it into a box and ship it to somebody was really where the the two things were colliding. And not just offline to online, but specifically this D2C model of being really friendly, you know, in terms of customer experience and, and making it really easy for people. Because I think that's that, that whole question of why would you buy online if it's more convenient or maybe it's easier to test by going into the store. And what we were espousing to customers and what they have settled on as well is that you don't need to you know shop through 10 different models of mattresses to necessarily find a good one. And people were happy with the ND mattress from the first shot. How important is it for you to watch Trailblazers in the US market? So, you know, Casper launches in 2013, ND follows in 2014. Kiln is born in 2020. Who in the US were you watching or have you been watching, if anybody? And is it important to watch trends coming south of the border? Do you feel like, you know, we, we can trailblaze our own path here in Canada? Yeah, that was a thing for us for sure, um, which was a trend that didn't really exist too much when we started, but it was something we saw where you had a brand like Warby Parker was the one that we had seen early on, which had done such a great job with glasses. The thing was we were seeing was, is are these brands really looking at Canada as, as a country that they're spending a lot of time on? Um, seeing big markets like mattresses are a big market. Um, how can you look at that market and, and serve it better through through a better experience? And so from the start, when we got going, um, and as we saw Casper entering to Canada, was this whole, they were just air shipping it from the US and they were sort of just looking at Canada as an add-on. And we were saying, well, let's, let's take on Canada as, a, as the full strategy. And that was really powerful from the sense that 
people really identified with that. They really resonated with that here, having brands that were uh, born here in Canada. The other thing was, is it seems to be with Canada and U.S., especially with retail trends, there tends to be a bit of a delay in terms of what happens in the U.S. versus Canada. So a lot of times if you're not, if you don't have your finger right on the pulse or you're right on the ball, um, they'll come up to Canada after, maybe six months, a year after, because they'll start in the U.S. first. But as a Canadian, you can see some of these trends sometimes happening down there that's growing and, uh, you know, using Crunchbase or what have you, and then kind of look at, you know, something to develop for Canada. And I noticed a lot of other people in other countries are doing the same. There's Australian entrepreneurs, there's yeah, British entrepreneurs, there's German ones that are sort of looking at some of these trends and making it country specific, and they're getting a lot of success around that as well. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I mean, I think it's a great strategy. There, there are obviously others, but the idea that you can find a company that's had product market fit in the U.S., you know, analyze what what's happened along their growth curve, see if they're, you know, have if they've raised, you know, Series A, B, C, D. That's a strategy that I hear time and again that seems to work in markets like ours, where there is this six or twelve month lag, as you describe. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the only thing is, is sometimes there's ones where just because they're raising ABC, like if you wanted to look at WeWork or something, or there was Blue Apron, <laughs> which went through a lot of struggles. So you definitely have to be careful mm-hmm. that you're not uh, that you're not overly indexing on a particular particular thing. So um, there has to be. You need to also look at those fundamental trends as well, not just not just rounds. But I think if you take all that information together, like you take the fundamental. Like human trend, what is this? I mean, even the trend of urbanization is a big thing, right? And you're taking all these trends together. And if you're seeing this intersect, I mean, e-commerce is driven by a lot of this. But uh, so now a lot of that's more obvious to people. But uh, I think um, if you can combine that and then you've seen where the where the capital's flowing, um, that makes it definitely is a helpful one as well. Yeah. What are some of the, the D2C trends that are perhaps not as obvious to most that you've come across or that you've been talking about lately? Well, um, I think a biggest thing with D2C right now is just so many entrants have come into play. Um, it was like this with with mattresses too. I mean, I think for us, it's easy to think we were like, um, that we were all alone. There was a lot of other people trying to buy after our market. Um, I think there was something like 250 mattress startups between Canada and the US within that sort of, 2015, 2014, to like to 2017 era. And just a lot of them just went out of business uh, because they weren't able to launch and scale. So now if you look at it, I would say that trend continues to happen where you're going to have more and more and more little entrants that come in. And then the ones that are getting to scale, definitely access to capital is a differentiator. 
But I do think also it's it's thinking outside the box no matter what it is. Like originally when you start with a digital company, you're outside of the box because you're not thinking like a traditional retailer. But now when you're coming in, like noticing with, with our launch of Kiln, as we've gotten going, just doing the same strategy as everyone else is, is probably not a prudent idea. Looking back, I mean, it heralds a bit back to where we were with the TV days. Even you look at TV advertising for products. There was a point where... You know, the first people that started advertising on TV, they saw ginormous returns because no one had ever advertised on TV before. But then by the time you get to the 80s and 90s, everybody's advertising on TV. I see the same trend happening more in the digital world as well. So it just comes down to that creativity in terms of reaching your target demographic. When you say access to capital is obviously a, a big factor, when when you guys started, did you have... I don't know that we've ever talked about this. Were you bootstrapping Andy early on? Did you have angel investors in the mix? Like, how did that shake out? No, we bootstrapped. So um, some of it came from from Rajan and, and a friend of his uh, and mine as well. Um, and then some just came from, like, I put a little bit in as well. And then we put in some um, just from selling pillows as well. We made some money there. And then when we took those profits that we'd made, we then ended up pushing that forward into Endy um, as a new, because we just saw that as the model going forward, as opposed to using a channel, um, as opposed to an Amazon type situation, going direct to the customer and having basically the ability to shape the entire experience from the, the first time they meet you to the first time to when they get the product, uh, not having a middle person. So that seemed to be better um, as we saw Warby Parker scale and, and receive so much accolades for what they did. And so we continued down that path and it ended up being quite great. So no, we never actually had to raise around. We were able to bootstrap to the end. And that's something that I still espouse to a lot of entrepreneurs that are getting going, where sometimes they think, oh, I don't have full access to, to capital. Always like the best way to get it is from customers if you can. And if if you need to raise around, um, I think in the US, it's far more common just because of the size of the market and how much capital there is as well. But in Canada alone, I think you can get away a lot of times with bootstrapping uh, at least from the early days, um, to get moving. I want to circle back to something you were talking about at the very beginning. When you started to get interest from potential strategic acquirers, other acquirers, I mean, the sleep country thing makes total sense. These other strategics or other potential acquirers that were in the mix, were they private equity firms? Like, who were they? Well, that actually, in terms of acquirers, if you're looking to get acquired, it is an interesting thing because like who is going to acquire you? And if you're looking at it from that perspective, you know, when in our case, it happened to be a retailer, it wasn't the first person we thought. I mean, with some of this stuff, of course, I can't fully discuss publicly because some of it we signed agreements and things based on discussions not completing. But we thought there was potentially like sort of someone from the US maybe would be the best idea because they would be saying, oh, we haven't quite got traction in Canada. Let's buy someone who already owns that geography. Um, so we were looking at that and then um, private equity made sense too. And especially, I mean, even to speak to Sleep Country's story, they were acquired by private equity um, and went public. And then I think they got reacquired by private equity and went private and went public again. Um, so in terms of that as a pathway, there's definitely private equity firms that will acquire companies and then look to take them public again after. Um, and then, of course, there's the going public route as well, but you have to be at a certain scale to make that work. So, yeah, in terms of exit strategies, there's a few. I mean, the other one is to not exit and just pay dividends to all the shareholders and move on into the sunset. So <laughs> there's there's other ways and there's other models. And I think sometimes we look at what's happening in TechCrunch or we look at what, what the latest Globe and Mail 
situation is, and I think is not always necessarily the path where you have to do the VC financing and then go to A, B, C, D, E, Series E, and then have them eventually, you know, ring the bell on the on the public markets as the exit strategy. I mean, there's other ways to go. And as the entrepreneur, you get to drive that ship as long as you haven't given away more than 50% of your voting rights. <laughs> as, as a friend of mine so wisely said to me, don't pay attention to the business porn. Yeah, exactly. Going through this exit with Sleep Country, is there anything looking back that you would have done differently, knowing what you know now? It's hard to say. I mean, I think in terms of looking at life in general, to go back and say, would I have changed this or this or this? In some ways, I guess maybe I sort of just look at it like this is how things how things proceeded and how we went. I try to look at the positive and pull that out. But I can't think back on anything where I'd say, like, I wish we would have handled the negotiation differently or we would have handled the process differently or how we did it. Because when you do look at the numbers out of it and how things ended up, like it was a like sleep country is happy with the numbers. We're happy with the numbers. Everybody's happy with how it's proceeded and how we organized it and how it came together. So I don't think uh, from my perspective, I could say that there was much that I would have changed. Probably if anything, I think this it, to go through it a second time, I think it wouldn't be um, as much of a big event, I would say. Like, I think the first time through, it's a really big thing. It's like your company and you're selling it and you don't know what's coming next. So I think if anything, it's more about taking everything in stride and, and enjoying things and and, and that sort of thing. So, but for me, I'm, I was happy with the outcome and how it went. What has it meant for you personally? I mean, an $89 million check, it, it ain't bad. Um, when you reflect, um, or even how you, how you've been experiencing things post acquisition or post exit, how have things changed in your personal life? Um, are people showing up in different ways, unexpected ways? Do you feel like you've changed in any way? In some ways, yeah. I mean, I think what it changes is um, you're going from someone like when we were trying to pay for uh, our mortgage and things like we were scraping pennies together all the way through. You don't necessarily know that there's an exit about to happen. There were many times when we were we were right on the wire. And then I think you then switch very quickly. So yeah, it has an effect, I think, in terms of mindset right away. I think if anything, there's a bit of a shift, I think, in terms of other people in that more people are approaching for investment or things like that. And they, they're looking at you more in terms of business. Part of that, though, is just growing into it and, and learning that um, that it's a great thing. And one thing I really do enjoy is like for starting Kiln, like there's just no stress on it for me financially to get it going. We're just going to fund it and, and we'll take it and we get to do all that testing. And we don't really have to worry about it until um, we get to a scale where we think we should raise and then we can pursue what we want to do for our cap table. So from that perspective, it's nice to not be so forth. So, and that's kind of always been sort of my dream is to sort of have that, that business that I get to just kind of along with Noel and, and we get to just run it how we want to run it. So when did this passion for entrepreneurship start? I mean, you, you come from a engineering background, yeah. so it, it's not always an obvious pivot to go from engineering into entrepreneurship. So when I came for university, I originally was looking at, um, aeronautical engineering and something related to, I was just into sort of like the idea of something like that, um, something that was fast and something that was either a rocket ship or an airplane and getting involved there. But I think what it came down to, I kind of reached that crux where I could decide to go that direction or more the entrepreneurial one. And I think for me, I just didn't like the idea of working for the government or a company that was getting paid by the government. Now, I guess when you look at all this private commercialization of a lot of this stuff, it's different. But I ended up just kind of deciding at that point I wanted to pursue more of an entrepreneurial path. 
and a business related path where the engineering piece comes in is like businesses always have problems. Every business has an issue about something and just enjoying the journey of solving problems is something that I've always liked. Like, I don't mind if there's an issue. It's just like, you just kind of got to work through it. And that's sort of the joy of it. But I think if you don't like problems, then you're probably better to find (laughs) something with less ambiguity. (laughs) It takes a very unique entrepreneur to be good at starting something, scaling something, and then optimizing something. It, It seems like you're, you're a natural founder. You love problem solving. You love the early stages of, of growing a business. Do you feel like you also have the chops to scale and optimize to build something that's hundreds of millions of dollars in size? Yeah, I've definitely heard that comment before uh, where people kind of refer to the Jeff Bezos idea where they're like, he's a one off. Like you're mm-hmm. not going to you're not going to be able to start as like a nerdy dude in your room selling books. And then you're going to be like the richest person on the planet with this giant organization. And at some point you're going to have to step back and hire in like, you know, like the Eric Schmidt or whatever you like with Google, or there was many situations where it was sort of like the founders, like they're good at product or they're good at this, but they, they're not able, they're not capable of managing a large organization. I think the biggest thing is, um, is just sort of is, is ego really. In trying to just let go of, of a lot of things and um, just understanding that you can't do everything yourself. And, and I think that's where the scale, like there's the startup phase, which is all about this MVP and, and, and having less resources and trying to get forward and, and, you know, chicken and egg problems and pulling a rabbit out of a hat and all those sort of skills. The scale up thing just becomes a different set of skills. And I think if you're not willing to sit down and be like, I did a great job at this phase, I think a lot of people still want to hold on to that. And a lot of companies end up with with founders trying to scale up that are still acting like it's a startup, but you've got hundreds of people like they don't care that you're good at figuring things out. Like they're just kind of like, no, like if you're their CEO, they want someone who's charismatic, who can communicate well, who can, which maybe you weren't at. If you're doing everything yourself early on, you may not have been good at those. So I think where the ego comes into play is just being like, hey, like I don't fully, I'm not thinking about this correctly, like time to take a step back let's find a coach or let's go talk to somebody or whatever it is. Even, I mean, some of the best feedback you'll get is from, from the team you're working with. Being like, where am I off? Where am I on? And being able to be to the point where you're okay with taking fairly candid feedback from people. Even Did if you do that? I'm not always the best at it. No, I'd be lying if I was perfect at it. Uh, but I would say that um, I try my best at least to just get as much feedback from everybody. When you were selling to Sleep Country, was there a thought that you would stay on as CEO long-term? We discussed it. I think we definitely went back and forth on that idea. I think what we were finding was, is there was two schools of thought. If we were to combine together and integrate, does that hurt sort of the magic of the team that we have with Endy just being focused on the mattress and Endy and that brand? And so eventually what we ended up settling on was more of an independent, that it was better to be independent. And it's worked out well financially and for Sleep Country. And it's worked out well in terms of the metrics and the and the growth of Endy. So in terms of integration, we just never quite got to a point where we were able to figure out that, you know, both could work hand in hand together. So, but it, yeah, it definitely was an idea. I think part of it for me was just loving this entrepreneurial journey as well. And we'd gotten to such a great point of it. And then uh, just sort of passion wise was really excited about getting going on something new at that point. Um, and so, yeah, and I think it... The other way to put it, too, is I think it would be different to run a company the scale of Sleep Country and Andy together, which is approaching, you know, eight, nine hundred. Like, I don't know what the market cap is now, but it's getting close to a billion dollars. It would be more fun to be even at a smaller scale than that, but to have it be something that you'd started as well. So 
Um, so that's kind of what I'm thinking for the next bar to hit is hopefully to have something that it's about that scale, but it's something that we put together and still have the ability to drive it forward. Who are your biggest mentors, Mike? Entrepreneurial mentors. Entrepreneur. Well, my dad's definitely one. Uh, definitely chat. In terms of people that are older, definitely have reached out to quite a few over the years. I would say it was more like a village as opposed to a single person. And I had definitely had a lot of people that I've reached out to over the years and had good chats with. And the other thing is peers um, is a really key thing as well. Um, sometimes with the mentor mentee, you're looking to them to have some sort of, again, like some sort of silver bullet solution. I think I've found a lot of peers, you can kind of talk about what's really going on in terms of businesses and things. So I'd say it's been a combination of like friends and some people that are a little older that are in a more of a mentor space, uh, working, you know, with my dad and then also with, um, you know, different groups and different friends. Do you remember pieces of advice that you were given that stand out and that you carry forward today that were perhaps not so obvious? For sure. Um, I think a big, big one was, um, I think it was like when I was uh, uh, doing business school and I, I met an entrepreneur who'd come in and was chatting. Uh, so I went over to Europe to do it, uh, to do my schooling. And then this uh, Belgian guy, and they tend to be a little more direct in, in the Netherlands and, and Belgium area, where and they just kind of say it like it is. So I was like, hey, like, what, what are sort of some of your key tips uh, to being an entrepreneur? And his point was just sort of like, if you have to ask, you're probably not cut out to be an entrepreneur. I was like, well, what do you mean? And I was like, I'm cut out to be an entrepreneur. He's like, well, no, no, you're not. If you were an entrepreneur, you'd be being an entrepreneur right now. You wouldn't be asking me. It's more of an action word. And I think that's where I've seen it, where you have a lot of people like I've got this idea and that idea and this idea, but the ideas only go so far and really being able to take something and just run with it is what matters. And you're going to bump into walls and you're going to have many failures and you're going to have things that don't work. But again, having a bit of that perseverance without being obstinate, <laughs> like being stuck on one thing, but having some perseverance, but being flexible and and moving forward with, with what you're trying to build is what's really important at the end of the day. So. It's good. Good last words. In the last couple of minutes, Mike, where do you want to point listeners to for more on what you're building at Kiln and for more on you as you go about your journey? Uh, I use LinkedIn quite a bit. Uh, mm -hmm. That's probably my favorite channel to use. Um, Twitter, I've, I've never really gotten going on too much. Uh, so I would probably vote LinkedIn would be the best place to look. <laughs> well, it's always a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot. That's it, guys, for today. Thanks so much for listening. E2 is brought to you by Scriberbase. Want to build recurring revenue for your business? Visit Scriberbase.com for more info. If you enjoy the show, download, share, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit us at glow.fm e2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An Electric Cast production. See you there. Electric Cast. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, I got this chair.
my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big on this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.